you need a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, um, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start, if you're pulling it up on your Bible app or getting your Bible out, we're going to start um, in verse 19 and look at the end of the chapter first and then kind of work our way back from the beginning. So anyway, just Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Um, again, I want to say to the kids, students, and elementary students, and everybody that's here, we're glad you're in the room this morning. Next week, um, Scott Thacker is going to teach on Ephesians 3. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure Cole will be here. Um, and then the following week, Jay Lee is going to teach on Ephesians 4. And then, yeah. And then you're going to love this. Uh, on Ephesians 5, we're going to have the discussion tables and have breakfast tacos and coffee. And so plan on being here the next three weeks. It's going to be good. Um, let me pray, and uh, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for this morning, for this community, for the friendships that we have, and the relationships that you've created. I just pray right now as we gather, as we open your word, as we consider you, that you would pierce our hearts that you would correct, you would affirm, you would encourage, you would teach, that you would do that through your word, through words that you've given me to share, that it, it would just be about you, Lord. We want to see you move. I want to see you move in my life. I want to see you move in the lives of my friends that are gathered here this morning. We pray that not just for us, but for your people everywhere they gather this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So in January of 1990, Okay, so that's probably before some of you were born. But January 1990, um, I met for the first time my in-laws, Joe and Seal Cowan. And just to give you a little bit of backstory on that, um, I met, I, I knew who Celia was. We went, both went to Baylor. I knew who she was, but I really noticed her, you might say, on, uh, in the spring of 1989. And the way she tells the story is, then I pursued her to Dallas afterwards. I would say I went to Dallas to look for work, and once I got there, I began to pursue her. So we sort of agree. We're still working it out, um, exactly how that went. But uh, so we began to hang out as friends. I'm told later, I thought something else was happening. Um, but that was in October of 1989 that that started. And then uh, in January, we were just friends, and I went to her hometown. It's just kind of a strange thing to do, to go meet parents when you're just friends with a girl. Um, but that's what we did. And then six months later, at the end of July, Celia had become a flight attendant with Delta Airlines, and while she was away on a trip, I called her dad and said, hey, I want to come talk to you. Um, and I wanted to ask if it would be all right if I married his daughter. And... Um, I want to say to any young men in the room who haven't done that, that you should do that. That's significant and important. And um, so anyway, as I, and I, you know, I was a knucklehead. Um, am to some degree, but was for sure. And uh, I'm sure I probably called after 10, you know, because <laughs> like, that seemed normal to me. And probably woke him up and kept him up. And so when I got there, uh, Celia's mom said, did you come to buy a truck? Because they had a small town car dealership. <laughs> you know, that was her last hope. Like, buy a truck from us. Tell me that's why you came. 
And I said, no, I want to talk to Joe. And so Joe and I sat down and I asked if I could marry her. And then she came back in the room and we talked together. And she said, so what are you going to call us? And that was it. Like in that moment, I became one of their kids. And like I learned such a great lesson of how to welcome somebody into a family, the way they welcomed me in and made me feel a part. You've heard me tell stories before about you know, mashed potatoes were a big deal to me, a big Thanksgiving and Christmas meals. And when she found that out, I never asked for it, but she always had it. If, she, if you drank Diet Coke or Dr. Pepper and she knew it, the back fridge was stocked with it. You know, and as and far as my father-in-law was concerned, if we were going to play golf or hunting, I was one of the guys. You know, and I just, they just invited me in and they adopted me to be a part of their family. And today what we're going to talk about is something even greater is that God has adopted us into his family. And we've just become, if we've trusted our lives to him, we've just become one of his. And that I want you to think about it like that as I read these verses. And we're going to start with the end of this chapter and then work our way back to it. Um, But 19 says this, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. I want you to listen to those words You're no longer strangers and foreigners, citizens, members of his holy family, his house, that Christ is the cornerstone and we are joined to him, his holy temple. Curiously, in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, we hear some of the very same language. Paul wrote Ephesians, Peter wrote Peter. You're coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. I want you to catch that we go from outsiders and strangers and foreigners to insiders. And not just insiders, but members of his family. And so you got to wonder, like I do, like how do we earn that? How do we accomplish that? That though we're broken, and we are broken, all of us, and though we make mistakes and we're not perfect, that, and we blow it when we try our best, that in the midst of that, that he makes us something great that's attached to him. And I want you to understand that this is God's nature. If we look 700 plus years before Christ was born, in Isaiah 55, we find that, listen, listen how he works. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. What was once the worst becomes something beautiful. I want the kids in the room to hear this. We all struggle with perfection. We all struggle to be perfect, and we're frustrated. 
when we face hard times. Your parents are that way, I'm that way, and you're probably that way too. That we all have that struggle in us. And that when we hit those hard times, we're, we, we're, just, we're prone to doubt the goodness of God. We're prone to doubt how he is. But I want you to understand that he takes these things, these hard things, and he makes them something beautiful. Just like that Isaiah 55 verse, where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. I want you to picture cypress trees. Have you ever been like floating down the Guadalupe River and those big cypress trees that come down into the river? They're just massive and impressive. That that's what he does. He creates something from thorns to something beautiful and strong and powerful like that. And our first prayer is often like, take this away. But instead, he turns that very thing into something beautiful, part of our story. I remember years ago, I was at a men's retreat at our old church, and they gave us these cedar sticks. And I've actually done it on a, with, on a men's outing to Big Ben. We've done the same exercise. But you take these just rough cedar sticks, and you begin to strip them away, and you begin to kind of whittle the wood away. And what you find is the deeper you go in those seat, like a cedar fence post, the more you strip it away, the more beautiful it gets. Right? And, the, and the thing that like after a weekend of every time there was a quiet time or a break and guys were like, you know, taking and working that stick over, that what we found is like the, the gash in the, in the stick or the, you know, the knot or whatever it was, like that actually as we ripped everything away and as we carved around that, we found that like that was the most beautiful part of the stick. And that's to me what Isaiah 55 is saying. And that's the work that God's done when he just takes us from the outside and brings us inside. He's doing a work in us. It's a process. It's a journey. It's something that he is always at work in. But that, so for me, when I hit the hard times, I remember he's brought me in. He hasn't abandoned me. I belong to his family. And he's at work in me. He's doing something greater than I would do in myself. And to understand this, I want you to understand like where we were and what our status was. So we're going to go back to the very beginning of the chapter. Okay, Ephesians 2, the very beginning of it, verses 1 through 3 say this. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. We were dead, not physically or mentally, spiritually dead. The spirit is life. We know that God is spirit. We know that when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well, that he told her that God is spirit, and those who worship God worship him in spirit and truth. And that spirit, before we come to know Christ, is dead. It's not alive. And that's the greater truth than our own physical lives. Like the core of who I am is my spirit. Like when it talks about, you read Psalms that say, in my heart, I cried out in my heart, or my heart was hurting. It's not talking about my physical organ heart. It's talking about the essence of who I am. That's where your spirit is. And there, like, that's what was dead. And we were following the devil. And I think that's important to know. We tend to gloss over that. We tend to say, well, I'm not so bad. I'm not a criminal or a liar. Well, maybe not a bad liar, 
or a cheat, or, you know, I'm not as bad as those guys, the other ones. Have you noticed, like, if social media in particular, I feel like this is amplified, that how we love to vilify other people, right? The days of you're innocent until you're proven guilty, those days are gone, right? The court of public opinion is a harsh court. And they decide very quickly if you're guilty or innocent, and they begin to pile on shame. And you see it happen over and over again. We don't have the whole story, but man, that guy or that girl is bad. And whew, every, it's just become a tar. And I wonder, like, why do we do that? I think it's because we, it somehow makes us feel better about ourselves to see that they're so bad and they're so terrible. Or maybe it's a past hurt. I, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not pretending to be one. But they're, they're, it's a thing. Am I right? That we see, and I think the bottom line is, is that we tend to think of sin as outside of us, right? We're very gracious with ourselves and very harsh with others, if we're honest. If you don't think I'm right about that, check yourself in traffic. Okay, but that's, like, we have trouble owning our sin. We think, like, if I'm late, it's because those people didn't do what they were supposed to do in traffic. Or if I say something harsh to you, it's because of something that you said first. But the reality, what Jesus said, is the sin resides in our heart. Right? That, that's what his teaching is. It's not even the acts that you do, murder, adultery. It's the thoughts that you have. It's what's in your heart. Right? And so when we minimize sin we devalue the grace that we're talking about today. All right, if sin's not a big deal, then grace isn't a big deal. But in fact, we learn from these first three verses, sin is a big deal because it causes us to be dead. And what I, what I love about these verses, harsh as they are, what I love about them is this, is it claims there's no middle ground. This idea that you know we're marketed to on this level all the time, I choose I decide, I can create, I can listen to scripture and consider it. Well, these verses say, no, you can't. <laughs> because when you follow your own selfish desires and inclinations, you're actually following the devil. So that's black and white. And I love, I need, I don't know about you, I need that kind of clarity in my life. I read a quote this week from Paul Tripp that said, I'm in desperate need of the grace that alone is able to rescue me from me. And I need to pray what David prayed, that he would create a clean heart in me. I need to own before him that I'm, without him I'm dead. And see, this idea that I can choose and that you know, I'll consider, it's old as time. This was the sin that Eve and Adam committed in the garden. This was the way the enemy came at Eve, was to get her to consider that God, he put doubt in her mind. She had everything, and Adam was right there with her. They had everything they could possibly want or need, and they walked in the presence of the Lord. And yet, he planted the doubt in her mind. You, could, you know what? You can be just like God, even greater. You can decide. And, you know, we tend to think of, like, that 
God gave him the instructions maybe yesterday afternoon, and then this morning the devil came, and then maybe 30 to 45 minutes later she took the fruit and she ate it. And it's all super impulsive, but maybe there were weeks that happened between these events. We don't know. We don't get a timeline. But maybe she'd been looking at that fruit and thinking about, well, maybe God's not good. Maybe I know better. And, like, and that doubt began to grow. And what I want you to think about this morning is this, is that's how the enemy works. He plants doubts in us that doubt the goodness of God. I love that several of our songs this morning, after several hours of meeting with Jay, not, not really, <laughs> talked about the goodness of God. How great is that? It's a good reminder. Because we tend to do that thing where we look past everything else that God has blessed us with, and we get focused and upset with him about this one thing that he won't change. And yet, by his very nature, he may be doing a work in us that's more beautiful than anything we've ever could imagine that he would do if we would just surrender ourselves to him. And in the process, we're doubting him. And you know what? I just want you to think about a little bit about who the enemy is. This was his problem. If we go back into scripture, Jesus in Luke 10 talks about him falling like lightning from heaven. And in Isaiah 14, 12, we'll put these verses up, that this commentary say is a reference to Satan. That in the top part of that chapter, he's talking about the king in Babylon, but then he begins to talk about the great king of Babylon, spiritual Babylon, which is the enemy, Satan. He says, how you were fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth. You destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Arrogance, pride. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, you know, the devil's goal was to be above God or equal with God. And I think it, like, it's worthy of our consideration that he failed. His biggest, his ambition, his life's goal has not been nor will be accomplished. He failed. And so now he's desperately trying to confuse us that we might fail. And you put that in comparison to God who's accomplished everything he ever set out to accomplish. And I just wonder, like, why do we challenge the Lord and why do we not challenge the enemy? Amen? Like, why, why when things get hard, am I prone, am I susceptible to, why could you let this happen to me, God? Instead of, what is the snake doing in my house? That, that ought to be my first reaction. Because I can look at creation, I can see intelligent design, and then I can seek peace with the creator. And I can know that, you know, he hasn't let me down. He's at work. He's accomplished everything. He's there, and all his promises for me are good. And though I may not be able to see what's going on right now, I know he's at work in me. And I got to stop evaluating based on the fall and I go back and look at Genesis 1 and 2 and see how he created the world for Adam and Eve to walk among and how he'll restore it, how he's restored it through Christ 
and reconciled us and how he'll restore and make all things new in Revelation 21 and 22. And then my heart begins to change, doesn't it? I begin to think, man, he's not so bad. He's good. Amen? And so I want to just nail this point home that there is no middle ground. Ephesians 2, the first three verses, makes this plain. I can't sort of do what I want to do and sort of do what God wants to do. That there is a king and he's on his throne and what's required of me is to be obedient to that. And in the midst of my rebellion and, the, and, and I've rebelled as all of you have by seeking our own way, that in the midst of that, not after I cleaned myself up and came to him, but in the midst of that, that he reconciled me and he reconciled you. So as we get to the end of verse three, and it says, our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. And then the, the best part of this chapter, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. It's very similar to what Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't clean up. I'm gonna say it again. We do not clean ourselves up. We just come to him. You remember I said at the beginning of the service, I think last week from Psalm 86, he's ready to forgive. Whether you've sinned one time or a hundred times or a thousand times, he's ready to forgive. It's who he is. And so we come to him and because of his mercy and because of his love, that even though we were dead, he gives us life. Paul goes on to say this, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. When you believed. So it's revealed to us. He makes known to us that we can be in union and relationship with him though we were dead. Though we were sinners. And he makes that known to us. And when we believe, that begins the relationship. And if you're here today and you've never begun that relationship, you just invite him in. There's no magic words. There's no magic prayer. But there is a prayer. You have to confess to him, hey, I know I'm a sinner and I need grace. And I just want to invite you in. And all that does is begins a journey where the Holy Spirit gets implanted in you and begins to guide you and direct you. And we would love for you to do that. If you've never done that before, if you have questions about that, we want to help answer those questions. Because once you do that, you get life, just like we talked about in these verses, and that we become, we begin like this journey with him where he begins to make us more like him. And we begin to walk with him. We begin to see significance and purpose in our life. And it's a gift. That's what I want to stress to you today. This is a gift. It's not something that we earn. It's just a gift. 
and it's, our, it's his nature. And Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says he's slow to get angry. And you, you find the same language in Psalm 103, Psalm 86, Psalm 145, where he's slow to get angry, and yet he's filled with unfailing love and compassion, and he lavishes love on us to a thousand generations. And yet he's also just. So here we have this gift, and we have to decide if we'll receive it. But when we do, we get everything I talked about last week. We are in Christ, right? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in him. We're chosen, we're adopted. Our freedom has been purchased from sin. We get free of that. He gives us an inheritance and we are sealed. And as we discussed last week, we become his glorious inheritance. And he looks at us and he can't wait for us to become to him and be in his presence one day. And verse seven this week says that we will be incredible examples of his kindness. And so we're part of this just crazy plan that he's always had. And I wanna stop for a second on verse 10 and just echo what Abby said to the kids here this morning, that where's workmanship? Older kids, the kids that are older than the ones that come down here, I want you to hear, yours workmanship. Like God doesn't make messed up stuff. Everything he does is perfect. And it says in his word that you are his masterpiece and his workmanship. You are his sons and daughters. Crafted to do the works he planned for us to do long ago. He made you for this. I want you to know that. I want you to receive that. And I want you to embrace it. That we get to be a part that not only we get to be in his family, but that he's made us in a way that he's made nobody else, that we might be able to do things that nobody else could do for the sake of his kingdom. That's what it means to be his workmanship or his masterpiece. And so the middle part of this chapter is that not only does he reconcile us individually, but that he reconciles us collectively. And he had to overcome this wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles basically are non-Jews, right? And there are two types of Gentiles, those who in general believed in God, like the centurion is a good example of that, that believed in God but just was outside the promises that were given to the Jewish people. And so when Christ comes, he reconciles all of us into one family. You know, another symbol for that was circumcision. It talks about that in verses 11 through 18. And the whole idea is just very typical of what we do is that here's this symbol that's supposed to represent something beautiful and it becomes this religious thing to the Jewish people. That, you know, if you're not circumcised, you're out. But Abraham was circumcised because of his faith. And so Paul does a great job talking about circumcision about the physical act. It's about the heart and the desire for God. And so anyway, God goes on and he creates, or Christ, through Christ, a way for Gentiles who are far away and for Jews who are near to be fully reconciled and a part of God's family. And I love, like, that as I've wondered, I don't know if you do this, but I've wondered at times when I read scripture and I'm like, Man, that's so good. That's such a great promise. Is that for me or is that for the Jewish people? 
Like, do, do you ever do that? Do you ever read stuff in the Old Testament and go, hey, I went in on some of that. Like, that looks like a good promise. And so if you've ever felt that way, I want to point you to Genesis 12, where God makes a promise to Abraham and says that he'll be, all the families on the earth will be blessed through him. And then in Romans 4, that he's the father who all have faith and believe, that basically everything that's been promised to Abraham and his people is promised to us who believe. And then as we read, as we know that, and as we read Ephesians 1 and find out that even before he, he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ, that what I, what I, as the more I think about that, the more I want to just share with you that Christ was all, like, this is God's plan unfolding. He was, Christ was always a part of the plan, as were you and I. And that he's made a way to overcome the, the, the barrier that we erect as people between one group and another. And so that all of us should be unified in Christ. And we hear that in Jesus' heart in John 17, this desire that we would be one, just like Jesus and God the Father are one. And so I just want to encourage you that with this morning and say this, that because of what Christ has done, that you and I get to be part of his living and holy temple. This past week, I was up talking to some of the guys that are in the football program at Anderson. And after I got done talking to them, I went into uh, the weight room and I heard one of the football coaches, Cecil Johnson, talking to the uh, guys lifting weights. And uh, they were giving them encouragement. (laughs) When uh, Ken was up there with me and when we walked in, they were all sitting in rows and the coaches were encouraging them to give their best effort. And what Cecil said, I loved. He said that, you know, when he was part of a team, he, he played football at Mary Harden Baylor. I don't know if that's Division Two or Three. I can't remember. But that team has won national championships. And Cecil was a part of that. And I don't remember where in the timeline Cecil fit into that. But he was talking about being a part of a great team. And he said, you know, I was probably the most unathletic guy on our defense but I played defensive line, and behind me was an all-American linebacker, and behind him was an all-American safety. And all I had to do was give my best effort and do my job. The thing right in front of me, right? Like the guys on the football team cringe when they hear, do your job, because they've heard it 10,000 times. But you know what? We have the same deal. It's just better that we're We're part of God's family. What I want y'all to hear this morning is that you and I, we belong. I don't know what your family of origin looks like. I don't know if there's bumpiness there. Um, But it's okay. Because you've been invited into a perfect family. And the people around you are living stones that are being made perfect by the Most High God. And that you just have a role to do as his workmanship. He just needs you to do the thing he's asked you to do and the thing he's made you to do. Like that's, that's all. And, and what I want you to embrace about that is that you, know, you don't have to strive to do that. It's in you. Like I love the language that says we are his workmanship. It's very similar to his language In 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, so we are his ambassadors. You don't complete a test. 
You don't do a certain amount of push-ups and sit-ups. You don't get prepared in the spring to be one in the fall. You are. When you step into this family by inviting the Lord in, you are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. Masterpiece. As you breathe, as you walk and go and do what you do, the Lord is using you for the sake of his kingdom. We're a part of that family. We're a part of that team. And what that does in me is this. When I know I belong, when I know I'm his masterpiece or workmanship, when I know that he has a purpose for me, when I know that the things that I do offer significance, eternal significance, they'll live beyond me. Like what that allows me to do is to be free and to love the next person that I meet with and to not worry about the big plan because I can't impact that anyway. To just do the next thing, just like Cecil told the football team. Just do your job. That that's what we get to be a part of and that's what we get to do. So I want you to know that he made you for this and I want you to know that you belong to a family and I want you to know that without you, it's like somebody's not sitting at the table at Thanksgiving. That's how the Lord feels about you. Like, where's that one? I want him or her to come to the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that this idea of being a part of your family would pierce our hearts, that we would understand what that means, that you're making us perfect, that you're doing the work, and that all you require from us is to yield to you. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who desires to invite you in, or that they would say something to the person that they came with, to me, to somebody, that they would have an opportunity to step into this family that you have made them to be a part of. Lord, I pray that we'd have the opportunity to share this good news with other people this week. Lord, we just want to see you move. We want to be what you made us to be, your workmanship. So I pray that for each person here today. Lord, that as we stand and sing in just a moment, that we're just reminded that your spirit would remind each person here how much you love us. It's not about our sin or accomplishments, but it's about the, your love and gift to us. It's in Christ's name we pray all of this. Amen.